Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get the inside scoop of those in the entertainment industry. Celebrate them, and if you know, you know. This man right here is no stranger to the podcast. Three-time guest as of right now. Top, most talented kid in the business. He got the merch that's going fast. You see the scully, and he got shirts, masks, socks. Next thing you know, he's going to come out with the law action figure with the kung fu grip doll. Ladies and gentlemen, my brother from another mother, Law. Welcome back to Beyond. Hey, the- <laughs> that's the intro, bro. Thank you so much, man. You know how we do it. Thank you, man. Yes, sir. It's definitely a pleasure to have you back on, and we're just going to throw conversations out there and let's see what sticks. All right, let's, let's do so, it, man. You know how we do all, it, dog, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shimmy, shimmy, y'all. Rest in peace, ODB. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, um, first off, Happy New Year to you and the family. I hope Thank that you. everything is blessed and everything. But um, last year, we lost two pioneers of hip-hop. We oh, lost yeah. from Houdini, and then we just recently yeah, lost Shabadoo from Breaking and Cut His Soul Train. Yeah, man. So can you tell me about, first, the impact of Ecstasy, Houdini, and why they're not mentioned when you mentioned those top groups that helped pioneer and shape hip-hop's early years and Larry Smith and his production on Houdini? Well, let me just say this, fam. Um, honestly, and, and that's, it's not to, it's not to um, go against what you just said, but I think only in the smaller technical terms, Houdini's not mentioned. But see, here's the thing. If you love and breathe hip-hop culture the way that I do, the way that you do, the way so many of my other friends and even the heroes who we still have here, like Grandmaster Kaz and Busy B and Melly Mel from the Furious Five and, and the rest of the Cold Crush and Run DMC as well and the Fat Boys. So shout out to Kuroski and Prince Marky D. You know, then everybody that knows and lives and breathes hip hop, they already, that's why, why you think he got, why you think Houdini got love around the world when, when XC passed away? I, I wasn't shocked to see that people, there were R&B people shouting out ecstasy and, and people saying that if it wasn't for ecstasy I wouldn't have became a rapper his whole Zaro had his fashion the way that he rapped in the whole bit so they are world renowned they and they are mostly celebrated in terms of that now in terms of them being in a prestigious hall like the rock and roll hall of fame that's another story because they definitely should be in there without question because right next to run dmc and the fat boys those three groups fat boys run dmc and houdini those are the three biggest rap groups that broke the door down for crossover appeal on the pop charts and in terms of visuality. Because the Fresh Fest tour was what it was. Fat Boys blew up, began doing movies. As you know, they did, 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 they did disorderlies and then Run DMC pretty much conquered the whole damn planet. So they basically were able to do what the, um, the pioneering forefathers before them weren't really able to do you know i mean we almost came close because melly mel was in beach street so we almost came close but technically by the time beach street came out and things began to change in, in hip-hop um i think furious five kind of got stuck in this place not on purpose i'm pretty sure some things happened but they kind of got stuck in this realm so by the time run dmc came out you know with calvin klein no friend of mine no one by his name Mob, it became like this new era of hip-hop it, almost in an instant and this is before Kane and matter of fact, LL Cool J came out around this time because LL predates Kane and G-Rap and all the other guys that will come after him. So going back to Houdini, it, it, you can't talk about 
the the um the progressive years of hip hop crossover and not talk about Larry Smith's production, groundbreaking production and Ecstasy's fashion flair, smooth but still aggressive terms of it, Jalil with his rhyme writing and of course Grandmaster D DJing, you know, one and being actually, if I'm not mistaken, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, the first DJ to actually you know, spit, spit some shit on the mic, you know, so that like wants some real stuff. But if I'm wrong, please correct me. But yeah, absolutely. They, they, they definitely have impact. Right. Because when I went back and listened to their catalog, especially the Escape album, it was rap, mm -hmm. but it had R&B sensibilities. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I could easily hear Teddy Pendergrass singing the record and have Houdini come in and do a hot 16 underneath the bridge. Uh -huh, that's true. It's true. It's very, very true. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about us losing Shabadoo and how breaking pretty much helped mm. breakdancing go mainstream and just his impact on the game. Well, you see what I just did, right? So I, I can't do that. I have I have two left feet. I have no it, it's, it's okay. I mean, I, I I do it for the both of us, but you see my anybody that's ever seen any of my shows, you've seen clips, of course. You already know that no dance solo of mine, even when I do certain choreography, no matter how modern or group stepish the shit is, there's gonna always be a part of me that will go into a pop and lock or a breaking spell in a second. The importance of Shabadoo, as I, you know, you see the night that, that I, the day that I learned that it happened, I had no plans of going live, but I, I just, you know, I, I cried. I got overwhelmed because as I told the story on my Facebook, you know, when breakdancing and pop lock culture took over the streets everywhere, Chicago, LA, New York, and even down South, because of course we didn't know no better. We didn't know about that other part. You know, New York is the epicenter of hip hop culture, period. So it wasn't until the mid eighties where you really began to learn that we were not the only area, even though we created it, we realized that it spread throughout the world, all over the world. So now everybody is putting their stamp on it and everybody know when NWA and those guys came out and you learn, they said, yo, the Crips and the Bloods used to break dance. I'm like, wow, see, I, I would I knew, I would have never knew that because my first impression about Crips and Bloods is like, yo, niggas is gang members. And I didn't realize that these guys used to break battle against each other to prevent from having to shoot each other that's that's a real thing so the thing is that you know and being that breaking was based in la you know what i mean which it makes even more sense because boogaloo shrimp and and shabadoo and along with um anna lollipop sanchez the, um the girl used to always be killing um kelly in, in the competition popping taco all of popping pete taco all those pioneers of the break dance pop and lock culture jeffrey Downs of shalomar um, the whole the whole lockers crew in general. Mm -hmm. That is the foundation of the cornerstone for my generation as we begin to take those moves. Dance. So when you think about dance like the Cabbage Patch and the Running Man and things of that nature, all of those moves came out of the ability of the flexibility of break dancing and being able to do certain things with your foot, your knee, you know, things like that. So Shabadoo without question um, influenced the hell out of me because, you know, between, you know, the, the shoulders of the wrist, the arm, you know, just different, all those different variables of how to move your body and different things that he could easily do. You know, it, it, you know I'm a young kid and to have a mother who was so damn cool enough to recognize the impact that hip hop was having on her gospel R&B 
funk singing son. You know, like I said, I'm a singer first, but when I started becoming a rapper, my mom fed my sensibilities. Like she saw, you know what? This is not really part of my generation, but my son likes it very much. So you know what? I'm going to invest in doing that. So she took me and my brothers and my cousins to go see Break In, Beach Street, even, even Crush Groove, and of course, Last Dragon, which wasn't really about break dancing, but because of the culture at that time and because of what was going on, every movie caught the break dance fever. But if it wasn't for Shabadoo being the lead in breaking and it becoming a box office hit, you know, who knows where dance would have went? Dance would have probably stayed in the same thing that it did in the 70s. So it, it that hurt me to the core because we spoke a few times. I never met him, but we spoke a few times. I would tag him. He would come on my page and be like, oh, man, you're looking good. Lord. And, I'm just, and that, that was the best feeling in the world to hear that from somebody who I studied, because up until he passed, I still would watch Breaking every time it came on cable or some shit. So rest in peace, man. Yeah, yeah. I was fortunate enough to have the chance to interview Shabadoo years ago on my college radio God show. God bless you. Very humble. And, you know, he was mm -hmm. very, very enlightened. And I just, it was just an honor for me to interview him. Uh, and uh, Tyrone Proctor, who did some choreography yes. work for New Kids, also got his start on Soul. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. coming mm -hmm. soon will be an interview with Juliet Hangerman from Soul Train. So you Ooh. can that on Beyond the Album Cover coming soon. Wink, oh, wink, I can't wink, wait for Dutch. that, man. Yes, sir. It's going to be fire. And I want to go back a little bit. You were talking about the Fresh Fest. For those of you that don't know about the Fresh Fest, it was the mm -hmm. first tour to go in arenas for hip hop. It was put together by True Michael story. Malden, JD's dad, JD. Jermaine Dupree's father. And the uh, Freaks come, at night, come Out at Night video. He was getting his star breakdancing, popping, locking, cutting his teeth, and then also Chad Elliott, AKA Dr. Seuss, the producer, yes. got his start on that tour as well. If you go back and look at Crush Groove, Be My Girl, that is, and yes. And I want you Chad. to be my girl. And also, <laughs> got to give a out to Sal Abatella of uh, Disco Fever and Fever Records. Definitely yes. big, big contribution in hip hop. And also, he helped contribute to what we now know and love as freestyle. Yes, absolutely. So talk mm -hmm. a little bit about freestyle oh, yeah. and its impact in music and how certain producers <laughs> and acts were able to mesh the Latin rhythms with the hip hop sounds. Um, you know, as you probably saw recently, I had, you know, I've had three very key elements to freestyle because, you know, everybody always says, you know, I, I don't, I never try to get into, unless just a direct influence like a Larry Graham, which we know he's the inventor of slap bass. When it comes to the origins of certain techniques and music, I'm always very subjective when I talk. So when I don't know the definite, I always put the key elements that helps start it together. Because honestly, whoever came first is neither here or there for me when it comes to freestyle music. But I will say, I had Lisa Lisa on here, as you know. I also had um, Bowlegged Lou, you know, Full Force Productions. And I also had Angel of the Cover Girls. So, um, you know, my very good friend. And here's the thing about freestyle. I always make this joke. The best part about freestyle music is one thing is always going to be guaranteed. Freestyle music combined the best elements of pop, electro, techno, and R&B and R&B settings, all with a Latin president. Simply because of the fact that most of the people not not miss not count not not counting Shannon because Shannon definitely is a is a freestyle queen because let the music play was a, was a trendsetter. But I'm saying more so after Shannon, 
there's only a handful of girls of that complexion that had did those kind of records. So when people like Brenda K. Starr and the Cover Girls and Lisa Lisa and, and different people of that, it became like, and even Expose, because Expose was the two, you know, two white girls and I think um, Jeanette is Mexican. I'm not sure. I think she's Mexican. She's, she's definitely of Latin descent. But that became the personification look-wise in terms of the girl, because I'm gonna be honest with you, freestyle, even though we had Stevie B and George Lamont and, and of course, um, without question, TKA, the kings of the kings of freestyle without question. Um, it was a women, it was a woman-dominated um genre. So the thing is that the one thing I always make a joke about is freestyle music is the one genre that I guarantee you that will have every Hispanic, Latin, black, and white girls singing to the top of their lungs like they wrote these songs because these songs spoke the teenage love and and you know, being foolish in love or the idea of being in love, it spoke directly to the teenage consumer. And it was backed by these infectious beats and melodies and strong hooks that you couldn't deny. That's why I had to have Angel on my show. And you know, Angel don't do a lot of interviews. That's why I was very fortunate that being that we've been friends for so long, her and her husband, Shots Latif, like we, you know, he's like, that's because we trust you, Law, and you know that you, I said, that's because she's a pioneer in this game. And anybody that doesn't know that, you can't talk about freestyle music without talking about Angel's voice. Her voice became a very signature, distinct voice that helped a lot of other girls get their swag later on down the line. So um, freestyle music, I paid attention to very early while I was listening to all these other things of music that was coming out between what, um, 85 and I'm gonna say, uh, let's just say 96 to, to, be, to be exact. Cause even some of the freestyle artists were still either making music or the old shit was just still getting so much play. So um, the impact of freestyle music will never, ever die because as you can see before COVID hit, Cover Girls, Little Susie, George Lamont, um, and different people who were, even people who weren't freestyle necessarily were affiliated with that because it became a sonic movement of niggas. And I hate when people be like, oh, these one hit wonders, or they had a couple of few records, or it didn't matter whether you have one hit or two. The bottom line is that it signals a movement of what that era represented. And that song takes you back to where you were when you first heard it. And freestyle really has that ability, thanks to the cross-pollination of R&B, pop, and even techno stuff. And well, not even techno stuff, but stuff that would influence techno years later. You look at Calvin Harris and all these different people like LaBouche and remember all the people that came out? They all took their cues from freestyle producers and freestyle music. So yeah. Right, definitely that. And we're going to stay in the mid 80s and I'm going to back up to Beat Street because if you look in the movie Beat Street, Brenda K. Uh -huh. was one of the singers that was auditioning in the club. That's right. There's another act that was auditioning in the club at the same time was a two-man group made up of Mick Murphy who you can catch yep. my throwback interview with him on YouTube Woo! on Beyond the Album Cover and David Frank. Can we please talk about the system? You know, it's so funny you brought that up because I don't know if I don't know if you had caught my my um Dawn Robinson interview yesterday, but you know, because we're not because now we're pretty much for those that didn't tune in, um, you know, we're gonna start working together. And one of the things that she has said before we confirmed any of that shit was she's like, you know, I've been getting into the system a lot lately. Which is interesting because, you know, the system is just one of those special units, almost like a hall of notes, in my opinion, even though David Frank doesn't necessarily sing. But Frank's musical mindset, you dig what I'm saying? And yep. it combined with Mike's ability to, to write and to sing and put things together, 
you're in my system and don't disturb this groove. I mean, that's two of their biggest, most popular records as a duo. But um, for anybody that has any one of the system albums, you already know, they were the best parts of what I call synth R&B. Simply because at that particular point in time, the R&B sound was starting to change, thanks in part to P-Funk and definitely Leon Silvers and Kashif. They were the pot. They were they were leading the charge in the early '80s with with the MIDI and uh, and different things that were being used in the studio with drum programming, synthesizers. So now nobody need to come in with a band no more unless they were trying to prove a point. So the last tail end, the last band to have an impact like that, where it was like a whole bunch of members, was Daz Band with Let It Whip. And if you notice, that was their biggest record. And in a lot of ways, outside of the stuff that we may know and love, that was their last huge record because by that point in time that let it whip hit big, the band thing wasn't really in like that anymore. Even Cool and the Gang, even though they were still operating as a band and they were winning, the sound on the album was told on the albums were totally different. After the Tonight album, after the um the, the In the Heart album, the whole fresh album, in case you didn't know, that's the emergency album. Um and, and Robert Cool told me this. I'm, I'm not telling you anything that's not rumor. That whole album is clay guitar and Curtis, Curtis Williams, a keyboard player, and a couple of songs with Robert playing bass and JT. That's the whole album. That's not all the other guys on the record, except for like the horn parts with DT and all those guys singing backup, but that's not the whole group on that whole album. And that's their biggest record. But anyway, um, the system to me represents that era that R&B was going through a serious transition. Now we're in the contemporary R&B lane. You're in my system was part of that unit. so. We can't talk about 80s R&B and not mention the system. They definitely were part of the movement that was growing to where R&B would eventually become New Jack Swing and all these other different things that would take over. So absolutely. Yeah, and if you go listen to Phil Collins' No Jacket Required album, you'll see David Frank's oh, yeah. name <laughs> on the credits for its work there. Yes. He also co-wrote The Hardest Thing for 98 Degrees, did plenty oh. of other stuff and you're genie in the system. bottle for Christina Aguilera getting that pop money and you're in my system was so good the late Robert Palmer had to cover it and even mind you even Prince used to do it during soundcheck believe it or not oh I did not know that I I, I have the audio recording for that <laughs> a lot of people don't have that yeah Prince did it for the soundcheck nice nice and we mentioned that the 80s R&B early to mid 80s was going in a more synth direction this one solo artist that gets overlooked but he had some bangers like love light i'm freaky happy together you and i oh yeah the theme for soul trains are coming from 83 to 87 oh my god let's talk about mr o'brien o'brien man <laughs> his cover of you and i is the best Stevie Wonder cover, I've heard that in intros, Ribbon in the Sky. I agree. O'Brien, man, listen here. Oh, my God. I can see, I can see this is why we can have these conversations, because, again, unless people who are watching this right now or who will be watching this, unless they're deep into the culture of R&B the way we are, especially myself, because I'm, I'm, I'm the, in this conversation, I'm, I'm the musician, and you're a diehard music fan that knows his shit. So that's why it's like the combination of that. They wouldn't really understand unless they're that deep like us. But O'Brien was ahead of his time with his image, with the way he approached songs. 
vocally, you know, on a lot of different levels on, you know, having strong vocals, but possessing that smooth quality to deliver those type of songs. Because, you know, back in those days, if you couldn't do a cover justice on the same level or better, it was a sin to touch any cover song. So he did you and I justice. And O'Brien to me does not get enough mention in these conversations when we talk about great R&B male singers from that 80s period. He's definitely in the top five without fucking question. Period. Yeah, I, def I definitely agree. Like I said, his you and I cover. I didn't know about Stevie's original until years later. Oh, wow. I heard it on radio okay. and then saw the Good Times episode where Ralph Carter was singing it at Thelma's wedding. That's how much he did wow. for that record. And then when I interviewed Rodney from Troop, he was saying that Troop <laughs> did a good job of always having a knack for covering the right records and doing it justice Absolutely. with All I Do Is Think Of You and then Sweet No oh, yeah. Like in the O'Brien case, I didn't know about the original records until years later. Mm -hmm. That is definitely a testament to you doing a record justice. Now back up to the system once more. If you go and uh -huh. look up this album by a three-person group called Attitude, I believe the album's called Pump Up the Nation. There was this yes on there called If You Can Read My Mind, which was a staple mm -hmm. in the Dallas Fort Worth area. If you know K1 in the mid-80s, you know that was your record on the Quiet Storm back on Dallas and K104. There was a young mm -hmm. woman that was the vocalist on that in that group, I should say. And she's done mm -hmm. vocals for many, many artists, most notably the boss, Cindy Mizer. Of course. Yeah. Let's talk about Cindy Mizer. Um, Cindy, Cindy, Cindy. Oh my God. Check this out. Alongside the great Lisa Fisher, alongside Tawatha G, and to make for those that don't know. Um, alongside my big sis, Nikki Richards. Um, I know I'm forgetting a few other names, like probably Darlene Love. And Cindy Mazel is, and Audrey Wilder as well, my, uh, my aunt, I call her auntie. Cindy Mazel is in that collection of what I call the A-list background singers who are notably incredible lead singers, but because their background game was so strong that even when they weren't recording their own stuff or being a part of different projects, when you saw Cindy's name on any damn album or any one of those names I just mentioned, you knew that it was going to be some shit, like especially on them, on them Stephanie Mills albums, like the back, they, they represent that quality. So Cindy is definitely in that preference. And of course, Honorable mention, shout out to um, one of my biggest idols, Sharon Bryan of Atlantic Star. Because when she left Atlantic Star and did that one solo album and didn't really do another one after that, Sharon has spent her last 20, 30 years singing backup on for, for everybody. And people, when I, when, I, when I saw her in the crowd and I noticed her, they were wondering, they couldn't even fathom why I got emotional. And we had known each other for years, but when we were finally meeting, I said, y'all don't understand. They're part of that collective. So Cindy without question is, you know, among that, 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 that field of these incredible female R&B pop singers who can sing anything and have a weight worth and goal with, with some of her solo stuff that she's done and some of the projects that she sung on, man. So I, I can talk forever about Cindy's influence, her tone, her phrasing, 
the way she puts certain things on certain songs, you know. And uh, do you know if she was related to the Mazel brothers that was in the corporation at Motown? You know, that's a great question. I really don't know. If I knew, trust me, I would be the first person to say it. But that's a that's a great question. Hopefully, if, if I ever speak to her or ask somebody that's close to her, I'll probably find out for sure. And of course, if I do, I'll be the first to tell you. I'll let Ex you know. Exactly. And then also, you can go on YouTube to catch my interview that I did with Miss Allison Williams. She was signed to Def Jam. Oh, my love so Auntie, long record covered just luck. And she really got in on being at the ground floor doing Def Jam's infancy and how she played mm -hmm. a big oh, yeah. impact on everything that came out. And solely, she was no slouch vocally either. I've done shows with Allison. That's all I'm gonna say on that. Listen, everything that she says and is truth. It's, it's a whole, it's so much truth to everything. And I feel like, and I'm glad that you interviewed her. Hopefully I'll probably get her on, on my podcast too. Um, not enough is talked about her, especially in the history of Dev Jam. Her and Nikki D, actually, because these were two women. You know, Nikki D is the first female rapper on Dev Jam, but Allison Williams is the first female on Dev Jam, period, and represented R&B alongside two other notable names that don't get a lot of credit, which, of course, is um, the incredible Pimp on Wax, Mr. Orange Juice Jones, and um, Tashawn. Oh, yeah, Orange Juice Jones, Durain, and if you look at SNL a couple years ago, Donald Glover spoofed it, and that's where I think a lot of mainstream people first like, hmm, what is this? But us in the R&B community, we knew about Durain for years, saying, you without me. We know what's up, yeah, exactly. It's my world, mm -hmm. just a squirrel trying to get a nut. Nut, yeah. <laughs> you you cold-busted. Cold <laughs> my first impulse was to run up on you and pull a Rambo. About to jam you and flat blast both of you. But I didn't want to mess up my $3,700 lace coat. So instead, I on the cancel card, on the credit card. I stuck you up for every piece of jewelry I ever bought you. Yeah, that's right. Everything. That's my That will never die. I promise you. That shit is to this day, me and my brother. Me and, you know, me and my brothers are stupid, as you as you know, personally. Like, we quote stuff from the 80s all the time, be it a movie a record, even a vocal part. Like we was making fun of Gregory Abbott the other day because he's like, yo, we, we dig his stuff, but that any meeny miny motion at the end of the record, I'm like, he, he must have ran out of words at that particular point. He's like, okay, roses are red and violets are blue. I'm gonna rock this world for you. He was like, what the fuck is this shit? Mm. But, um, but that's, but again, we're making fun because we're still celebrating them. Like I said, one of the most important records, but I'm glad that you pointed that part out because you're right, a lot of people, if they don't know R&B culture, they wouldn't be able to pick up on that the same way how when Holly Berry was on SNL and she was imitating Climax. Which you can catch my interview on YouTube with Bernadette Cooper. Oh, wow. See, uh, <laughs> uh, that's Auntie Diva. That's what I call her. That's Auntie Diva. I love her. Yeah, yeah, definitely check that out. She'll go in on Climax History, work with Jam and Lewis, the whole nine Absolutely. yards. And, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, and yeah. speaking of Jam and Lewis, can we talk about Lisa Keith? The incredible, or as Jimmy Jam and Jelly Bean both say, the secret weapon. Lisa Keith, white girl, by the way, for those that don't know, very much like Monty Moore, two of the Minneapolis Sound Productions' deadliest weapons in flight time, without question. So everything else in that particular section 
where you see Lisa's name on many of those Janet Jackson songs, Alexander O'Neill, even a couple of Sounds of Blackness songs, believe it or not. If you see Lisa Keith, if you see Lisa Keith's name, 90% of the time, she wrote either the majority of that song, 50% of that song, or she wrote the whole song, period. In mm-hmm. addition to what everybody else wrote. Because don't get me wrong, Terry is no slouch either. Terry's an excellent lyric writer, without question. But I'm pretty sure that he had help along the way with all the artists who could write. But Lisa Keith, like I said, like Monty Moore, was a definite secret weapon by all means. That's why a lot of those songs popped off the way that they did. Her, her, her knack for for melody and the lyrics that she could write, psh, listen, I, I can go on talking about Lisa. To me, Lisa don't get the credit that she deserves. We talk about me and Jelly Bean when we were in the studio working on the, um, on the album, we, we got into deep, you know, you know how we do, we got into deep conversations because they always be shouting like, damn, Lord be knowing. I'm like, because we were studying, we was reading liner notes and we, we never, I had never saw her face until probably, I'm gonna say 12 years ago. I never knew what she looked like until I saw an old picture um, I think on Jelly on Jelly Bean's feed. So yeah, I never oh. knew what she looked like until on YouTube somebody posted her EPK for her solo record that she put out. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and her just recently did a new record with samples making love in the rain. So I'm sure somebody is getting those royalties from that. And and, and and I hope it's the right and I hope it's the right people. That's all I'm gonna say about that. But right. And uh you mentioned Monty and Pleasure Principle yeah. for Janet Jackson. That record, if Janet would have passed on it, it would have went on any freestyle record that a girl could probably do because it had like that same element with the doom doom do 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 for tonight. Do-do-do. Because my because Monty is a why do you think I had Monty that, that was you know that's part of my deal with Jelly Bean for she can get it right like when yeah. Jelly Bean heard the song and he agreed to do it I said okay Uncle under one condition he said anything for you we gotta have Uncle Monty on keys because you gotta remember Monty's another one secret weapon this man wrote if you were here tonight for Alexander O'Neill and co-wrote what's missing like a lot you can hear. Certain things you can hear the difference between all four guys. You can tell when Jelly Bean did a song, you can tell when Monty did one, and you can tell when it was Jam and Lewis with sprinkles of Lisa Keith in between all those things. So they all had their signature things, but it was still all Minneapolis related. So all of those different textures of um, you know, different fourths and fifths, of course, because you know, Monty being a classically trained keyboard player, he knew how to put certain things in there and make it applicable to, like you said, pop or R&B. Everybody doesn't have that gift to make it applicable to both genres. And Monty, without question, had that gift. That's why Pleasure Principle is one of Janet Jackson's most popular records. Certain th- even the bridge that, I know what you mean to me. That's so, now from a musical standpoint, not a musician, but you gotta remember, me as a musician, that was so abstract. The chords is, that's Minneapolis though. That's many. That's that Minneapolis um, synthesizer that we have to make up for the fact that we don't use horns, and that that's because in the time that was Monty's job. Monty always did the Ober, the Oberheim the Oberheim synths. That's the whole combination of that. So you're right. You know you know your stuff, man. That's why I love talking to you. Yeah, and if you listen to Ti's new record Libra, he did a joint with Killer Mike. What oh. samples? If you were here tonight. Yes. See what I mean. That oh, yeah. goes to show you, Jam and Lewis and everybody in that whole flight time camp, their work will still be making money long after. And to me, 
the best Jam and Lewis work for me, humanly, mm-hmm. human. And then I really yeah, okay yeah because I've um read interviews with Jam and Lewis about how when Human League came to Minneapolis to record, they were used to doing, mm-hmm. you know, that whole new wave aesthetic and Phil Oakey was still singing in that robotic style of, you know, don't you want me yeah, to I heard, get, I heard to that get more soulful. So it was a little mm-hmm. bit of a of a push, but the record became Human League's biggest record, got crossover play. But it makes me wonder if on a lot of those Jam and Lewis records, Alexander O'Neill probably could have referenced a good chunk of them because I could imagine him referencing Can You Stand the Rain? Because if you listen to Sunshine off of Hearsay, that would be like a prelude to Can You Stand the Rain. Well, you know, here's a little secret for you. You're going to laugh at this. I made a joke to my friend Jermaine Jones one day that you know that you know how you can tell this is Jamal Lewis production because Can You Stand the Rain? If you were here tonight, come back to me by Janet Jackson. Sunshine, and even tell me if you still care. You know those are all the same key. Oh yeah, because I can hear it in the keyboards. Like, dude, those are all the same. It's different, di- different chords, but they're all the same key. Jam had a jam and Lewis, just like how Larry Graham's favorite key was E. James Brown's favorite key was D. Because most of James Brown, you could do. I could do a thirty-minute James Brown show with the same songs and put one on top of the other because they're all in the same. All, most of James Brown's songs are in the key of D. So it's easy for me to go from Mother Popcorn to Sex Machine to Give It Up, Turn It Loose to um, to um, to Pass the Peace. It's the same key, different arrangements, but the same exact key. So with Jam and Lewis, it was always that particular key. If you put all those songs together along with I'm Only Human, it's like, wow, you can tell, now you can really see how they wrote this shit. Mm, yeah, that's their go-to spot. And then if you listen to this cut, that was a B-side of Miss You Much called You Need Me. If you listen to the vocals, You Need Me. Oh, yeah, I know. Janet probably revisited that when she was in the studio recording If. And if you listen to the bridge on that record, yeah. I get the same breakdown vibe like New Edition and If It Is In Love. Mm-hmm. It's called Trademarks because, you see, a lot of times, see, me, me and um, Boleg Lou from Full Force, we talked about this because it's like with them. When they produce for other acts, like remember, I don't, you didn't catch the interview, but if you did, like I played, I played some of the stuff that they did for Britney Spears. And the first thing I said to Lou, I said, yo, your big bro, why does this sound like all cried out? And he no, began to laugh. The whole point, the whole point was that it's easy to take. Same thing with what's their biggest record for the Backstreet Boys? All I have to give. But my love is all I have to give. Without you, I don't think I can live. That sounds like full force. That whole the, the vibe of it is full force. Is just that Backstreet Boys are singing the song. So because I've studied them the way I studied Shaka, the way I studied everybody who I love and influenced me, you can always tell where the influences are in the trademark of a production of people. Like, same thing with Babyface. You can tell like you see after seven, I'm here the moment. That's you can tell his baby, even though it's his brothers, but you can tell that Babyface wrote the shit because it has that vibe. Like Babyface had a vibe. Um, um, and I love the way you love me. That whole that's Babyface always had a thing for that type of choppy sort of vocal thing that him and L.A. Reid and of course Daryl Simmons all came up with. So those are called production trademarks. Even the one you just yelled earlier. 
with my name, you know, the whole law. And I got that from actually from P-Funk because Glenn Goins was having a riff moment in Bigfoot music. And he just like, Lord. like he would do that. And I'm like, he always ends with law. And I'm just like, it sounds like he's saying law. So I took that and used it for my trademark and just said law. And that, that's how that came about. So when people hear me producing on the track or they, or they hear me getting ready to say a verse while I'm singing, they're gonna hear that trademark. So every producer and songwriter has an established trademark. Jimmy Jam and Chuck, even Leon Silvers, believe it or not. I could always tell, because Leon had this certain way he played the bass like nobody did. You could tell on them Solar records that when it was Leon or Foster, because Foster played bass on a lot of those Whisper records, not Leon. Leon may have wrote them, but Foster played bass on a lot of those records. I learned that um, when Leon told me, which I never knew until I read the credits. So long story short, Every producer and songwriter and even singer has trademarks that they bring to any situation where you're going to know it's them. Look at Shaka Khan in Higher Love when she sang with Steve Winwood. She's just singing in the background. But you can hear that. Me a I'm like, that's Shaka. Because you can hear the timber in Shaka's voice. You hear it. Yeah, you okay. definitely hear it. And you mentioned Forces work with Fashy Boys, Britney. They also did work on Instinct. And it brings me to the mind of a country known as Sweden. And I think Sweden, they have a knack for making uh -oh. great pop records. The late Dennis Pop, Max Martin, Herbie Creechlow. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. That oh, whole yeah. Sharon Pop Studios era. Because look at it. When Ace of Base broke big here in America, they're the only mm -hmm. international act to have the number one album and song of the year in the U.S. Mm -hmm. in 94. And the work that Robin did, that predated Oh man, Woo what do you think it is about Max Martin, Dennis Pop, and Herbie where they all had a knack for making those great killer pop records in Sweden and because, Germany? Because, as well, because, because here's the thing, and this is me speaking from a producer's perspective to me, the best producers, and this is my opinion, you can quote me on this, the best producers, in my opinion, you can quote me, are the ones that have an ear for all styles of music. This is why we're still talking about Quincy Jones 50, 60 something years later. Cause see Quincy took the best elements of jazz, blues, and then even when it developed into argue, yeah, I remember Quincy Jones was there from like the thirties and forties. So when musical styles begin to change other producers didn't know how to adapt. Like, how do we produce this disco music? And here comes Mr. Quincy Jones. Listen to a record like Stomp by the Brothers Johnson, produced by Quincy Jones. Listen to that intro. Disco like a motherfucker. Strings. Four on the floor. Four on the floor. But watch this. Look, check out what I'm saying. Four on the floor. But listen to that string arrangement. Classical music. He knew how to make the new school shit pop off, but still maintaining the level of excellence of what pop music is built on. Because people forget that pop is short for popular. And in order to adapt, you have to know equipment. You have to study the latest technology. You have to study um, how do I make this work? That's why a lot of geniuses that we call you know, producers from the 80s all the way to the 90s, they knew how to stay afloat. So when people like Max Martin that did all the, you know, all the boy band stuff and um, 
And of course, you know, the people behind, even look, even Frank Farian that produced Millie Vanelli. Because in case you didn't know, Frank Farian had a group back in the day. That's why the whole Millie Vanilli thing is, is was was actually funny because he had a group in the late 70s called Boney M. And the funny shit about that record is that the guy who he had doing all that crazy stuff on stage, that wasn't his voice. So Frank Farian had been doing that for years about having a certain vision of a record, but then using a visual template to subside that wasn't on the record. So a mark of a good producer knows how to put certain things together that can work. So I'm saying this to say that in the 90s, when all that pop, um, pop Swedish thing, European version of it, because the technology, even in Germany, has always been advanced. Another person that does not get mentioned, because if it wasn't for um, Giorgio Moroder, and I know you know who that is, if it wasn't for George, that's Donna Summers' producer. They were doing techno music in 1977. You know what I'm talking about. It sounded craftwork. I feel love. You know the story behind that, right? Yeah. When they did that track, David Bowie told, God bless his soul, David Bowie told this story all the time. David Bowie said he'll never forget, he was sitting in the studio, it's 1977, early 77, the album wasn't even out yet, and Brian Eno, who produced Roxy Music, I don't know if you know about Roxy Music, he, bought, he said, yo, David, yo, I just heard the future. This is 77, bro, 77. I'm off the place, listen to this. Do you hear that synchronized drumming? I'm telling you, this is going to be the wave of the next generation. This is Brian Eno talking before the 80s. So to be honest with you, it's been happening because there were a lot of people, you know, Brian, all those guys from Europe, Brian Eno and um, I think um, George Marone, I think he's German, but they all were produced. A lot of Donna Summer's records were produced in Europe and in America. So disco created house music. You gotta remember, it's all relative. So when the pop 90s thing came along, all, all these producers were doing were basically reproducing what would have been hot in the 70s. Be my lover, won't you be my lover? It sounds like it could have easily been made in the 70s with disco music. The only difference is that now we had new equipment. Now we had drum machines. We can we don't have to have the drummer playing for five hours straight and injuring their foot and their foot getting tired because now we had a drum machine and a synthesizer that did all of the work that made it easy for a lot of these producers to take their place in pop music history. Yeah. Now, I don't there know you if you, I don't know if you caught the BG's documentary on HBO. Yes, um, I did. I watched it twice. I yeah. didn't I did not know about their success in the UK before they came over here and how it you was didn't? Oh wow. Okay. Because of Clapton, they decided to come record in the US and then we all know what happened after that. Uh, well, of course, because um, see, but here's the thing. See, the Bee Gees and who, who are one of my biggest influences, what people don't realize is that the Bee Gees, very much like the Ohio players, smart. When I say smart, meaning that the Bee Gees were smart enough to know that this is what we want to do. We love R&B music. So Barry's emulation of his falsetto was in tribute to some of the singers who were singing like that during that period. But the Bee Gees loved that stuff because here's, here's the dilemma with the Bee Gees, a great dilemma. The early stuff that they put out before Saturday Night Fever and You Should Be Dancing all that shit, all of their early stuff were covered by R&B artists. I'll give you a perfect example. How can you mend a broken heart? 
How do you stop the rain from coming down? Now, as we both know, who made that shit popular for, for, for R&B? Al Green. The Reverend Al Green. Now, a lot of people who wasn't hip to the industry like me and you are, you would have never known it because Al Green, like he always does, Al Green had the ability to take any song of a pop stature and make it an Al Green record. For the good times, that's a country song. Chris Christopherson. On my pillow. And then the same thing with another Bee Gees record. Um, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to love somebody. Roberta Flack covered that. Donnie Hathaway covered that. The Chamber Brothers covered And they were, see what I mean? Like, so the Bee Gees already had an influence on R&B before they fully came into that era of Saturday Night Live and all that shit that would ultimately make them double famous. They was already famous, but once they did, you should be dancing and what's the other stuff? Um, Mike going Bieber, more How Deep Is Your Love? They were already huge before that, but Saturday Night Fever put them over and they became like a personification of disco, but they were not a disco group. They just knew how to flow with the times and make it work for their musicianship and their songwriting. Point blank period, they're geniuses. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the true mark of a great artist and a songwriter is when you could just mm -hmm. have songs just come out like flowing water. And that's what the Gibb brothers were able to do to work with Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers writing for their brother, Andy. And Barry oh, yeah. is oh, going yeah. to be eating forever off of the publishing of, off of those records. <laughs> you know that already. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but one record that came out in the 70s that was pop but had a hint of R&B that to me felt like the same vein of New Kids and Please Don't Go Girl for that era was Love uh -huh. Me For A Reason by the Osmonds. I thought that was an R&B record. Well, I mean, well, let's let's talk about the Osmonds for a quick second, shall we? <laughs> People forget, and this has been a conversation that's been a part of my Facebook for so long because a lot of people, you realize a lot of people didn't know how deep the Osmonds really were, because here's a mistake that their that their PR people made. The Osmonds were pigeonholed to be a Jackson Five ripoff because of the fact that what people don't understand is that the Osmonds were influenced on the Jackson Five first, going back to when they were little. You gotta remember the Osmonds were on TV in the late '50s and early '60s, way before Michael Numb even was out there. Michael Jackson said in his book, we used to watch the Osmonds on variety television. So that's the first thing about that. So there wasn't no shortage of talent. Both groups in influenced each other because here's a, here's a story in case you didn't know. In the mid sixties, the Osmonds have been doing the, um, the Andy Lawrence show, which you know is a variety, you know, pretty much mainstream, mainstream white America based shows doing Broadway stuff, middle of the road, white people stuff. Let's just keep, let's call it what it is. And basically, they got tired of that. They said, we, we, he said, we felt, he said, we was on the oldest member of the band is 17, 18 years old, but we already feel like the oldies at because we've been, you know, we, we're thankful to Andy Lawrence for giving us a shot on television, but we're into the stuff that our friends are into. And at that time in the mid 60s, what was popular? Motown, um, psychedelic rock and roll. The Osmonds were into R&B music. They always been a fan of it. It's like, we want to do stuff like that but they won't let us until Mike Curb came along. Mike Curb, Curb Records said, listen, I heard y'all guys want to become a pop group. Like, like you want to fit into the vein of what's going on. And Donnie always said that when Jackson 5 came out, of course we looked at them like, 
Exactly. I mean, not so much. We don't want to be like them, but we want to be accepted in a way where we want to do stuff that we enjoy as well. Like all of our white friends love R&B. Like they love Stevie. What's one of what is, what's one of Don, Donnie Osmond's most popular songs? You know, I'm a little bit of country. I'm a little bit of rock, rock and, roll and roll with a little bit of Motown in my soul. So the bottom line is that Love Me For A Reason, like a lot of Osmond songs, don't be surprised. One of my, one of my friends, um, Leanne, she goes on the Grown and Sexy Music on, um, on Instagram. Like she said one night I was playing something on Facebook and she said, she, you know what, she flipped. She was like, I didn't know the Osmonds were that funky. I said, are you kidding me? I said, the Osmonds have more leadway on their records than the Jackson 5 did. Because I've always said that if Barry Gordy would have been smart enough to allow the Jackson 5 to start writing and producing their own material after the first two albums, the Jackson 5 would have really took Motown to even bigger levels. But see, Barry didn't see the vision. So it took Michael and them having to leave. Whereas Mike Kerr, he told the Osmonds, well, the first two albums did well. So guess what? Y'all guys can write and produce your own material now. So that's why when they, when they, when they had that freedom, they came out with um crazy horses. Funky rock and roll, guitar solos. Um Jay, Jay Osmond's drummer, he's a beast. They were playing funk, R and B and rock. So it's almost like it's anybody that knows music and have an ear, they shouldn't be surprised. That's why I said for people that don't know the history, because for years they always used to get this bad rap of just being the whitest family. You know, they are Mormons, but the thing is just that no. They weren't trying to copy anything. And matter of fact, they were friends. In case you didn't know, real quick, One Bad Apple was written for the Jackson 5 by George Jackson, who, no relation, who's a black guy. But the reason why Barry Gordy didn't accept it is because Barry Gordy wanted to own all the publishing. And George was like, oh, hell no. Nah. So I'd rather go to the Osmonds. I'm going to get my publishing. And these white kids are going to sing my songs. So in retaliation years later, Ben, yes, yes, dun, dun, dun. Ben was written for Donnie Osmond's solo record, but Donnie couldn't record it because Donnie was on the road with his brother. So what did they do? They said, let's give it to Michael Jackson and see if he can record it. So see how both groups have always helped each other out and been with each other. I just hated the fact that people always did this whole thing of, well, they're trying to be like so-and-so. I mean, well, everybody knows who the template is and who's probably the better unit, but it doesn't really matter because it's all conducive and in, in to, to the flight of the boy band shit. So yeah. Yeah. Kind of almost like the same conversation I had with Danny when we were talking about new edition and new kids, how they were yes. they went to their shows and vice versa, and it was all love. Yeah. Cause first of all, you gotta remember, I mean Donnie and Danny said it from the very beginning. And anybody that anybody that thinks otherwise, they stupid as hell. From the very beginning of their careers, the first thing they said, not because they had to say it's because you couldn't deny that the, um, the, the, the look was obvious. They say, look, if anything, we're the white new edition because those are our idols. That's who we want to be like. And they paid this. And the thing is, is that people forget, unlike most groups, new kids paid their dues. Yeah, I remember it's a difference. New kids like Vanilla Ice was playing to nothing but all black crowds with no intentions of becoming a mainstream pop act. Donnie will tell you in a heartbeat, we wasn't interested in pop music. Vanilla Ice said, never in a million years did I ever think in my days of break dancing in Dallas, Texas with the rest of my black crew that we would be playing for a majority of a mainstream white audience because they were not targeting that audience. They were like, listen, we know where the shit comes from. We're comfortable here. I got black fans. 
and look what happened. Of course, you know what happens, crossover appeal. If you're whiter than white and you look good, you're going to get the white audience. And so that's what happened with new kids. Once people, once the white teenage girls saw what new kids on the block looked like, it was like, wow, we finally got a group that we can call out the guys that we like the same way how new didn't have the black girls and Menudo had the, um, the Hispanic Latin girls. But guess what? It didn't matter because all of those groups had all girls. It wasn't just inclusive to race. There's a lot of white Menudo fans. There's a lot of white girls who love New Edition. So you can't, music is colorblind, bro. That's why I, I get sensitive and I get hyped when I talk about this shit because the industry created so much ignorance. You dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It created a lot of bullshit ignorance where they telling people, well, since you're white, you need to be listening to this. Since you're Hispanic, you should be listening to Julio Iglesias. That's bullshit because I love Julio Iglesias. And I can't, I only know basic, I don't know all Spanish, I know basic Spanish, but I loved his voice. So that's what, what is that telling me? Right. You did? Yeah, because you could definitely tell the influence of R&B in the early 90s. If you look at those early, oh, yeah. the mid-90s Mickey Mouse Club footage with Young of Justice, course. Christina, Britney, they were covering Jade, Mary J. Blige, Jodeci, Whitney, and you could tell that all of them were listening to R&B radio. You're gonna laugh. My, 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 it's funny because my I, I, on Instagram, my brother's on here. Shout out to Casino Chip, my older brother. And here's the thing about me and him: me and my older brother and my cousins were living in Tucson, Arizona at the time. Now you know we from New York. They love us. No, we on the West Coast. You know the girls like us. You know the whole that type of shit. Me and my brother and my cousins are so secure in who we are because we grew up with all types of music. It's obviously because of our skin color what our foundations are. But me and my brother are the biggest new kids on the block fans because when Step by Step came out, when it gets to the breakdown, like step one, we can have lots of, we, me and my brother used to always imitate each member. Like we would always just do that to have fun. And the girls liked it. They were like, oh, y'all like new kids on the block? And I said, yeah, I said, it's dope. And then I remember we had the box at that time. You know what the box was, the request channel where any given moment, if they request the video so much, you would, um, you know, you had no choice but to learn the song. So certain songs that we wouldn't hear for periods and periods of time, we became accustomed to it because we loved, look, think about the type of girls we were dating at that time, because we were dating all kinds of women at that time, not just black girls, like we were. And the thing is that our taste in music, to be honest, is what kind of got us in these different situations with other people. And then even in certain situations where we would go to these racist apps, you know, Tucson can be very racist, as you know. We were going to record stores and they look at us and they think that we want hip hop. So when they found out who my grandfather was, it's like, hey guys, you wanna, oh, Santa's your grandfather. Um, we got hip hop, we got R&B. And me and my brother and each other like, these motherfuckers automatically assume that we wanna hear rap. No, I, I need, I'm looking for the first Led Zeppelin album. I wasn't bullshitting, you know, you know me. I wasn't bullshitting. I'm like, y'all know I love heavy metal, right? So my thing is just that, it, it just, again, man, I say this and I say this to, 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 um, to end this part of what we were talking about because music is colorblind. If Rick James and Neil Young can be in the same band together, as you know the history, mind, the minor verse, music has no color and boundary. Now, of course, all American music is black derivative. Make no fucking mistake about it. It comes from us. But it's not subjected to just one color. If you do the, if, if you white or Hispanic or whatever other race you are besides black, if you do the homework, study the culture and show love to the originators of this you have every right to do the music that you want to do that that you cater to yeah so 
I agree. It's what it is. One group in the early 80s that was super huge, got airplay on MTV. Heck, they even had their own Atari game, Journey, and Steve Perry. Mm. One of my favorite vocalists, because when you listen to him sing, I hear Sam Cooke. Steve motherfucking Perry. That Steve, he's in my, he's in my top 10 favorite singers overall. Listen to Separate Ways, man. That yell at the end, you know, that, ah! There's pain in that voice, man. Like, like when Steve Perry sings, you believed him. To me, that's what's missing from singers. A lot of singers, they don't, when you, when Steve Perry sang um, Open Arms, you know, or Faithfully, you believe Steve Perry when he sings. He convinced you. Here we stand, if our heart's broken in two, two, two. And that you hear that you hear that. I heard the song in his voice. I said he definitely listened to some R and B because you can't fake that. If you really study the texture of and mind you, when I saw an interview with him, I learned his favorite singer is Sam Cooke. I'm like, wow, see, and he's a he's a rock and roll guy, but his roots are what R and B, like Rod Stewart. Same thing. Mm, pretty much everybody from the UK, you would name Clapton, George Michael, Phil Collins on down, heavily influenced Absolutely. by US R&B. And speaking of George they Michael. They are all R&B disciples, point blank and period, as right. Tamar Brabson would say. <laughs> I agree, because when you listen to George Michael in some of the earlier Wham records, Trump Club, Tropicana, uh -huh. then later to make it big stuff, and you know what he's writing, that he was going to be bigger than a teen idol and was destined for solo greatness. And also, we got to give big shout out, big props and mentions to Eon Estes. Oh, man. <laughs> Heaven help me talk to strangers. Heaven Which to me sounded like a, a, a faith cut that was left on the cutting room floor. You know what? And because Dion is a badass singing and, and sick bass player, one of my favorite bass players, you know, and it was, it was to me, it, it kind of was a double-edged sword because that record was so huge for him and him and George wrote it. But on some of the press interviews where he was doing his run for the record, all they want to talk about was George. And I didn't, I didn't like that because it's almost like, okay, I get it. I mean, of course, George is a part of the record, but y'all keep forgetting in case you probably didn't know. Do you know that Dion was George's mentor? Do you know that? Did you know that? Did you know that when, when, when Wham got signed to Columbia Records, they called Dion to develop George Michael because George Michael wanted to incorporate Motown with what he was doing. They said, well, let's get Dion Estes because you know he's the Detroit-based king that worked with James Jameson and played for Marvin Gaye for three years. So the Funk Brothers. Yeah, so I, I, exactly. So a lot, of, a lot of George Michael's swag came from Dion. In case you didn't know, for those who don't know who watching this, a lot of his swag came. So it pissed me off that the one hit record this man finally gets. And I mean, of course, because him and George wrote it together, it was a collaboration. But it's like, I'm seeing interviews, he would get frustrated. I could see it in his face. I'm like, yo, man, focus on the fact that this is where George get a lot of his shit from, from this guy right here. You know, talk about the lineage and the respect. Thank God George Michael kept them all those years. You know, he, every time George went out and did something, he always had Dion with him. So thank God for that. But um, yeah, Dion doesn't get enough credit in my opinion. Shout out to Dion Estes, man. You know, bass king, extraordinaire, Detroit stand up all day. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about this young group who came out around the late 80s, group mm -hmm. of brothers. 
they were originally signed to MCA, but when Gerald Busby left MCA to go to Motown, this group of, uh-huh. this group followed him there, and LA and Babyface laced them with a top five R&B and pop hit called Down My Heart. Let's talk about the boys. Ah, the boys. Hell yeah. Oh my God, man. The boy, an- another group, another. Um... And you can catch my throwback interview with Bilal from the boys. Yeah, man. Another group to me, and reminds me, me and my me and my brother Casino, we were huge fans of them too. Because we always used to joke about their songs and things like that. But we loved them so much because you gotta remember, at that particular point in the game, right before ABC came out, right before some of the other groups were younger or just as old as they were, the boys were the perfect glimpse into the future of young R&B groups. Because by that time they came out with Dal Mahan and all that stuff, you know, New Edition was now a mature R&B group of grown ass men, they were no longer teenagers. So here we have these young group of these multi-talented guys who were already putting in work on Venice Beach. You gotta remember, I was a fan of them when they was on Amen and stuff, when they was on like TV shows and stuff. So I already kind of dug their personality and me and Hakeem the same age. So it's like, I got it. And it, it really inspired me. So I'm just like, it's just good to see young kids, especially Hakeem, because Hakeem, became one of the reasons why I knew I could become a producer because they his production, like, kids, his production, kids can't produce, look, kids can't produce records. Really? Hakeem produced a number one record crazy for, for um, the second album. So they be, again, the boys were, you can't talk about late eighties and early nineties R and B without talking about the influence of the boys hands down. And to me, they don't get enough mention in R&B conversations of that period. I totally agree with you. Right, and then there's one group who vocally, as a four-man group, was nothing to play with coming out of Oklahoma. Shout out Boomasuna. And a oh, lot man. of people, mainstream-wise, only know of I Want to Sex You Up. But if you listen to the whole CMB album, the Time and Chance album, you realize these guys were no joke. Let's talk about brief a little bit, Color Me Bad. You can catch my throwback interview with KT from Color Me Bad as well on YouTube and re-upped on Beyond the Album Cover. Color Me Bad is in my top five as far as my era is concerned. When you talk about great R&B groups, and I have a pretty eclectic list. A lot of people will automatically assume, how come so-and-so is not in your top five? Because you got to remember, I'm a different singer than most people. You got to remember, I'm a, in most situations, I was either the main lead, the, excuse me, the main lead singer or one of the lead singers. But also, I'm the kind of person, if I don't sing lead, I'm damn sure I can sing some background. Everybody knows that about me. I can do my own harmonies and different things like that. Color Me Bad is in my top five because you got to remember, I Want to Sex You Up was the tip of the iceberg. But if you listen to that whole first album, the first two albums, to be technically honest, is that they had the combination of all the right elements of the groups that came before them. They had that doo-wop sensibility where they can easily do four-part harmony at the drop of a hat. Like, their version of the bells is crazy. (laughs) You know what I mean? So they have that, and then they knew how to make it up to graded pop with the 90s synthesizer, you know, hip-hop sound because of what was going on at that minute. And they had the steps and they could do it live. A lot of, you gotta remember, and I'm, and I'm not gonna say no names, but I am gonna say there were a lot of groups during that period that you see, until I learned, until I went behind the scenes and worked with some of the producers that were part of these projects, I learned a lot. Cause I thought for one that everybody was like new edition and forcing these, I could actually sing live and not have to do, Boy, listen here. A lot of groups could not sing like that 
and still step. So they had to have a lot of people ghost vocal in the back and um, behind the curtain and, and, you know, certain buttons being pressed so they can hit the notes or whatever the case may be. And Color Me Bad, of course, was not one of those groups. I've seen them live three times when Arsenio Hall and up front when they played, you know, when they played, um, I think it was Garden when I went to that show. And boy, listen, vocals was on point, moves were on point. So without question, you cannot talk about 90s R&B groups and not talk about Color Me Bad. And to me, they don't get enough mention either alongside Boyz II Men, Jodeci and Silk and Azure. Those are part of my top five. Like these, they, they should be mentioned. Right, and then one R&B group who I felt was on the verge of taking that mantle where New Edition left off in the early 90s where it was pop look appeal but had R&B crossover I hear you. was uh, uh-huh. High Five. And Tony Thompson, rest in peace, vocally, he was the truth. Tony Thompson, that guy, one of the most original and creative voices of that time period. Tony's tone, <laughs> funny, I said Tony's tone. <laughs> Tony's tone, <laughs> I tell you, man, again, not enough honorable mention in my opinion. The way he carried the records, whatever producers they were working with at that particular time for any album in every situation, because truth be told, outside of um, Treston, and of course, Treston provided the bottom baritone, the whole big, great voice in the whole nine. But in addition to all of that, most of the vocal chores being done by Treston and, um, and, and, and Tony Thompson, just the combination of that along with the producers and the people who helped sung, sung on those records. But that's what made the high five records pop off the way, um, pop off the way that, the, the way that it did. Because the thing was just that you were able to signal out um, Tony's voice in that mix because Tony's voice was just so rich. You know what I'm saying? It was like just really rich and pure on on every level, man. You couldn't deny the fact that Tony's voice was golden. And and honestly, in my opinion, he's missed. He's missed a lot. I I really definitely miss him. Definitely that that sensational album, dope album. And that kind of leads me back to talking about Giant Records because, you know, Color Me Bad was on Giant. Jeremy Jordan, who will be on Beyond yeah. the cover soon. Record was on Giant. Mm-hmm. Good to Go was on Giant. Jay oh, hell yeah. Giant. Good to Go. Like, we I, didn't even, woo. I wow. felt that Giant had that perfect combination where you had pop and R&B and they knew how to market it and do it well. Shout out to Cassandra Mills. Yes, and you can catch my throwback in the middle Mills first. a genius. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. yeah, but good to go. They were the truth. I mean, never satisfied with a dope <laughs> yeah. record, but there was this yes, album called, called Notice Me, which I felt should have been oh, a yeah. single. And you can catch my throwback interview with Natalie Fernie from Good To Go on YouTube as well. Well, I got to see that interview. because I, I always wonder what they were doing after that, because I think they only had like two albums, right? Yeah, mistaken. I think it was like maybe only, only one or two albums. And then another group, I think, that don't get mentioned enough Vocally, these guys hailing from New Jersey. We know them oh. from the bathroom scene and Lean On Me. They were signed to my Records. Yep, My Heart Is Failing Me, White Man Can't Jump. Yes. Judy Had a Boyfriend. If you're serious, yes. talk about Riff. Well, in case you didn't know, I think you did. I think you talked about it. I had Nitty Green on. Um, 
R&B pop. It wasn't as aggressive as what the second album would be to whom it may concern. But um, Riff, another one of those groups, in my opinion, all five guys can sing lead. All five guys can dance and step. They was putting that work in. But unfortunately, when you sign to a label that didn't really cater to R&B, you got to remember, they were signed to SBK Records along with um, Vanilla Ice. And Barrio Boys and, as well. Oh, another, another, another one we don't talk about. Another and you catch my yeah. throwback interview with Joe Jacket. Oh man, that's crazy. See, like, see the interviews I don't get, you probably do get, which which is amazing. Not because I don't get them, it's just mostly because every now and then, if I'm watching a program, like for example, I um I like it like that came on. I remember the Barrio Boys was on that thing in the scene as as a rec as a group that got signed to um to, to the girl or whatever the case may be, but these are the groups and artists that we don't talk about because, and Riff being one of those as well, because Riff, to me, they were already kind of on their way. And like Nitty said, if they were allowed to do what they did and the company truly got behind them, Riff would have definitely been heavy contenders alongside the portraits, the the, um, the, the as yets and the, and the ideal, even ideal, like ideal had that shot too, ideal um, 4.0. You know, there was a lot of groups and they were all bad. I've heard this. I heard these guys sing live. All these guys were dope as hell. And again, they just did not get the push that they should have gotten. So Riff was lucky enough. Thank God that they had a movie behind. They had a movie under their belt. They toured with Vanilla Ice. They toured with LL. So they did make some leverage. That's why they're able to do shows and people show up because Fifth had a momentum for that for that period. They had a mo even with two albums. They had a momentum, but then they got they got blackballed in the industry because they didn't they, they didn't want to work with not them, but some of the members didn't want to work with David Foster. And they and they said he was one of the ones that wanted to, but got outnumbered. So shit happens, man. You know, this industry is a real crazy place, man. You know, right. And then one group right around that time period that I am, you know, good friends with some of the members of this group, Shy. Yes, absolutely. Shy is definitely important. And for me, and then honestly speaking, because I mean, this is, this is me respectfully speaking. If you had to put Shy against some of the groups that I just mentioned, it would be a perfect imbalance, if that makes any sense. Mm. Because Shy wasn't as aggressive as a lot of the, their counterparts. They weren't. Because remember, their success as a group was built on a pure acapella song. Whereas somebody like Boyz II Men, let's, let's take Boyz II Men, for example. Boys to Men blew up pretty much with Motown Philly, which was an incredible feat because usually when most groups come out with an up-tempo, they don't win. And Boys to Men won. See, Jodeci tried the up-tempo thing first. It didn't work for them. Nope. Until they did Forever My Lady. So look at a group like Shy that has some dope, some dope up-tempos on their first album. But what blew up Shy as a group? You know, this, if I were falling in love, straight up. Acapella record built upon their voice, and then Comforter to me is to me Comforter was a better record in my opinion. Mm. Comforter was a better record, and I think Shy just never really, you know, in my opinion, they had one record. Um, this is the place where you belong, right here. The place in my where home. you belong. So to me, on um, Beverly Hills, um, copy three. Uh -huh. but here's the funny thing: I felt like if they would have stayed in that, just my, just just my humble opinion. If they would have stayed in that direction, Shy could have continued on and got even better in their group setting among. You gotta remember, the, I mean, even though you're not competing against other groups, let's call it what it is. 
the competition is fierce, for lack of a better word. It's fierce. It's strong. You got to either come with something that gives you your own lane or you got to even follow a template of another group until you find your footing. There was no in between. Mm. You, you dig what I'm saying? That's why that's why Silk, that's why Silk was successful because nobody sounded like Silk and Silk could dance, but they couldn't dance. Like even, even boys to men weren't the best dancers at all, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> And same thing with um with J- Jodeci tried they tried to dance and it just really didn't pop off. To me, look, Silk was better dancers than both of those guys. But the thing is just that they all had something unique. And Silk just you know thanks thanks in part to John John's falsetto and then Little G just being all over. You no know, Little G's range is ridiculous. So it gave them a lane that no other R&B group had. But when you look at a group like Shy, you got to wonder. The only lane that they had was the fact that their 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 first hit record was an acapella record, and then they followed up with Comforter and a few other dope records. But to me, it just you know even when they did the second album, it just didn't resonate after a while. Not because they weren't good; it was simply because it wasn't a batch of a lot of material being had. In my opinion, they didn't have the best material. That's just my standard opinion on that. But right. you know, right. what and do then, I know? <laughs> yeah, and then also another group that was out at that time, another four man group out of believe California their biggest records were originally country records that were done by John Michael Montgomery I swear I can love you like that and for those of you that don't know they originally did I turn to you first before Christina Aguilera made it a smash hit so let's talk about uh-huh. all for one all for one is one of those I ain't gonna lie to you they had, they had to grow on me <laughs> it was one of those situations where I felt like all for one very unique group by the way that's why I love them like very very unique group because when you have a guy I forgot who, who what Jamie Jamie Dealey is Jamie Tony Boy, yeah, and I, I, Albert yeah. what I love about those guys is that they were the perfect example very much like in a lot of ways very much like boys to men if you think about it you know why because you had standard voices for certain things in that group. Jamie can sing soul, but Jamie just had this. I love Jamie's voice. Jamie just had this for better, for worse. I love you with every beat of my heart. And I swear it had a country thing to it, but it had such a strong pop cadence that can sell the record. And then you got somebody like um D who got that soul. But you don't have to look no further. Like he had that real rich R&B sort of Jeffrey Oz. He had that Jeffrey Osborne type of thing with him. And Albert, you know, you know, the, 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 the lone white guy in the crew, you know, he can sound like a black guy. Not because he's trying to sound black. It's more so because the false settle part of what his voice can do and how he can keep it registered, it all made a combination. And that's the reason why the, those first two albums were very successful because to me, they had a pretty unique combination that some of the other 90s R&B groups did not have. And they did the hip hop thing too, but honestly to me, it, they tried it, but it wasn't their strong suit. That wasn't what, that wasn't what they, same way how I said Jodeci's up-tempos got better as time went along, but Jodeci wasn't what you call an up-tempo group. Their strength was in the ballads, the slow jams, mm-hmm. boys to men, had a much more better take on the up-tempo stuff than Jodeci did. And Silk, to me, had both. Silk had the up-tempos and they had the slow jams. Yeah. So, so for me, with Silk, 
what Electra should have done was released the version of Loose Control that they did on Showtime and Apollo as a single. That version that they did that night was bananas. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it would have worked either way because, I mean, you know, you already know how I feel about Silk. Those are my ACL big brothers, and they're definitely in my top five as far as that era of groups is concerned because here you got five incredible guys anchored by um, – two strong, very, two very strong lead singers and their penchant for harmony. And then what I love about them the most, very much like all for one, is that I love the fact that they utilize the art and the dexterity skill of their bass singers. Of course, Timzo and Silk. And I've got the guys, what's the guy's name in um, them? He's a Spanish guy in all for one. What's his name again? I think Albert. Albert. I, I think okay, I, I might have the names, but I'm sorry. I think I that's used to Albert. love on certain awful. I used to love on certain awful one songs how they would let him, like I can love you like I can love you like. I used to love when they would use the bass singer. So in Silk, it was the same thing. I love like on on songs like Let's Make Love. All of a sudden, you know, John is singing his lead, and then here comes Simzo. Boom, boom, boom. Like just they 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 utilize all of their voices. Right. in that capacity and to me that's to me that's what they soak the ultimate group to this, to this very day you listen to them acapella they utilize all of the voices that a five-part we don't we, we don't have a lot of five-part harmony groups anymore as yet was one of the last one that's a whole nother conversation right they were among the last of that unit that utilized all five voices when it comes to harmony and the fact that all five guys can, can actually sing lead Right, so, and you can catch yeah. my interview with Sean Rivera from As Yet. And when you're speaking, of, when you were speaking of how groups utilize all five singers, and for me, that's what gave NSYNC the slight edge over Backstreet for me personally, because I prefer NSYNC vocally because the way that they incorporate Lance and the way JC balances out Justin's vocals. And how yes. Chris comes in on the highs and Joey fills in with the baritone. For me, it's magical. While Backstreet, you didn't really you don't really have a true bass, and you have uh, no Ke- Kevin's same bass. Ke- Kevin's Kevin's, Kevin's bass. Yeah, you know, you know what it is? Ke- Ke- I'm gonna tell you what Kevin's like, not to cut you off. Kevin is very much very similar to one of my favorite singers from as yet, and he's actually a, a huge influence on me, Kenny Terry. Why? Because if you remember Kenny Terry, Kenny Terry is very much like me. He can sing the lowest of the bottom bass, but Kenny got highs. Remember on remember on um on on last night as we explore our visions of love. That, that uh, bottom. Like, that bottom. Like Kenny got no Kenny. If you listen to all the, the harmony parts, that's Kenny singing all the bass. But when Mark left the group, they had to sing um, Hard to Say I'm Sorry for a TV show. Kenny sang Mark's part. After all that we did do. And he was up here in his range. And then as soon as he finished his part, he went right back down to the bass note, bro. It ain't too many singers like that. Kevin Richardson is like that too. Now I can see that we're falling apart from the way that he can sing up there. But in the, the harmony structure, Kevin was the bottom bass. Now, let me, let, me, let me throw a little disagreement, not to you, but to the, the point of it. You're right about that. NSYNC had it, but I'm going to tell you where NSYNC messed up at. This is just my personal opinion. Live-wise, it translated well. 
studio, not at all. Because in the studio, the one or two, three voices being used because Joey and Chris barely sang any, that's what it, they didn't let their other guys sing lead. The reason why the Backstreet Boys were able to continue and why they're still going as opposed to in sync is because in the Backstreet Boys, everybody can have their popular member. Nick and Brian may have sang lead on the majority of the songs, whatever the case may be, but everybody knows that all five Backstreet Boys can sing. There would be times where, that's why you see like, like um, Full Force said, we gave the lead to Howie for um, um, All I Have to Give because they wasn't giving him no leads. It's like, and thank God he did that because think about it. If his lead didn't make a difference, that record would not have become the hit that it would became because they said, oh shit, Howie sings too. So that's why I said it's kind of an ill dilemma between both of those groups because I felt like NSYNC didn't utilize all of the guys enough in my opinion. That's the reason why they ended so quickly because think about it, even though Justin would end up leaving and then later JC, could they have continued as a group without them? In my personal opinion, no. But the Backstreet Boys, when Kevin left to go start a family, they still made albums that sold well into the millions overseas. Right. And going back earlier, we were talking about Barrio Boys. And when I interviewed Bowlegged Lou, which you can find on YouTube, we were talking about uh -huh. them doing I Get Lifted, Barrio Boys, and how it was the first appearance of Fat Joe. And for me, that How We Roll album, to me, it felt yeah. like that album that Backstreet Boys wanted to do if they gone full-blown R&B. You can catch my interview with Kenny Whitehead, who also did yeah. the Barrio Love Boys Kenny album. Yes. Yeah, but Barrio Boys, they were super dope. But like we're talking oh, about Barrio SBK, I, I felt SBK didn't really have a clue on how to market their acts. Because like if you look at Barrio Boys, I mean, they were the precursor to everything that was to come before the Latin boom of the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, yeah. And then what we're seeing now with CNCO and the whole... Oh, make no mistake about it. Barrio Boys would have been bigger had they been on the right label with the right push and understood what they were trying to do and knew that, mm -hmm. hey, this demographic is coming. I felt the same way about Bobby Ross Avila as an artist. Oh, wow. Wow. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah, Bobby Ross Avila, everybody knows for his production and songwriting, but as an artist, he was cold. And I think he got his potential shown once he left RCA and went over to Perspective and put out the My Destiny album with My Love, La La Love. I mean, Bobby Ross oh, Avila, God. a bad that, brother. La La Love is my shit. Yeah, bad guy, bad guy, all the way, dope guy. Definitely a bad guy. And then while we're on the subject, real quickly on New Jack Swing, we talked about in the last interview, I'll be Kyle West. Chucky Booker, what do you think was the one unsung producer during that New Jack Swing era that constantly gets overlooked? Oh, good question. Um, hmm. I would have been able to say Chucky, but I can't say that because Chucky became so personified as an artist and a producer. So he's not overlooked at all. Everybody that knows, knows. But somebody who, if I mention a name, they probably won't know off the bat. It's, who could I say definitely? Um, I would say, honestly, I could tell you this, not producer-wise, but I could definitely tell you who was a key figure in that, that movement that should be talked about more, Timmy Gatlin. Because here's the thing. back interview with him as well. 
because Timmy, and I'm pretty sure that he was on my show as well. So you, so you already know, you know what I know. And hearing him, I mean, I already knew this stuff, but to hear him talk about it in a direct form that I haven't heard, no, dis, no disrespect to Teddy, but I have not heard Teddy talk about the shit in the extreme form that it should be talked about in. Whereas Timmy was able to give me dates, what he used, how they wrote Peace of My Love, how this song, you know, that's why it's easy for me to listen to Timmy. I'm like, because I'm like, Timmy's making a lot of sense. And I felt like because of all the stuff that him, and if you're gonna talk about producers, then there you go right there. Let me help you out. Walkie Stewart. Yep, another one. Severely underrated, severely underrated. Because he made, he didn't not only work with Velvet DeVoe, he worked with Ralph too. And had, or those guys sing, I mean, they've always been beastly singers, but he had Ricky and Ralph singing at their best in their mature voices at that time. So he's severely underrated. I mean, and they're not counting the guys that came afterwards because I, I was, I was going to say um, Dwayne Wiggins and of course Raphael because all these guys are producing, but that's more geared toward Neo Soul and, and, and the kind of direction that R&B was moving in at that time. But if we're talking New Jack Swing, um, without question, I would have to go with um, Wokey and um, a couple other guys I'm not thinking off the top of my head. Oh, another guy we don't talk about enough, Bernard Bell, Regina Bell's brother. brother. Yeah, if you he look fighters. at all of the Teddy Riley records, you would see his name listed on the credits. Damn near everything. <laughs> and then I think another person out of that camp, secret sauce of all of Teddy and Bernard stuff, Tammy Lucas. Oh, hell yeah. Come on now. We don't talk about that girl enough. You know what it is? Tammy's like another Lisa Keith. Think about it. Secret sauce. But a lot of, but a lot of, and I'm, and I'm so glad that um that Timmy mentioned her. I mean, I already knew, but I was gonna say, as a matter of fact, Tammy, Tammy had joined in that day when I had him on the show. She joined in and said that we shouted her out. I'm like, Tammy, just so you know, we love you. We know, we know about what you contributed to this game during the New Jack Swing era. And we're not gonna ever talk about New Jack Swing and not mention you. I'm not having it. You're part of this. We're celebrating all of it. It wasn't just Teddy. Yes, absolutely. Without question, the guy that helped, but he didn't do all the work by himself. He had people with him. Right. And then another camp that is talked about a lot in New Jack Swing hip hop soul circles, of course, Untouchables with Eddie F, David Jam Hot, David Jam Hall. I mean, intros work. I mean, the real seduction. I mean, no, Kenny, Kenny, no, Kenny Green by himself. Kenny, Rest Kenny, in peace. Another Kenny, one. Kenny Green was no joke. Intros, new life album, and their debut for me, all play through. No skip. Standard. I agree. I agree. Plat the platinum standard. Absolutely. Um, who else? Oh no, can't forget about Soul Convention, Prince Marky D and Corey, Corey Rooney, Rooney. Without question. Yes, yes, sir. I'm in the show. Another genius. Absolutely. Off of um Target. Shout out to Target using real love in the ad campaign. You know, Marky D, their production, nuts. Because I caught the interview that you did with Prince Marky D and was listening to the stories. I was like, yo. Yeah. It could have been bigger had, you know, certain politics not gotten in the way. But, uh -huh. yo, his production, usually, you know, I was just like, man, people need to take him seriously as a producer and stop seeing him as the guy from the Fat Boys. Well, I mean, it's not even, you know, you know what, Jay? It's not even so much about them not being taken seriously. It's really more so about, again, people who know, know. 
she got to remember, there was nobody really there outside of my, my legendary uncles and people who I came up in the industry. Most times I was by myself. So I learned things on my own about what some of the guys behind the scenes and where some of my favorite acts had went when I didn't see them doing videos and stuff and stuff like that. Like I always, you see, if you know, if you see on that interview, I made the joke because people don't realize when I remember watching Treat It Like They Want to Be Treated. And I say, I said, hold up, that's like Prince Marky D. And of course found out because Prince Marky D and Corey Rooney produced the record and then featured a, a, a unknown Jodeci at that particular time. And, and, and Sean Puffy Combs dancing the video. There you go. Mm -hmm. And we're definitely- so it's, about, it's, about, it's, about, it's about who knows and studies their homework. Because you remember, here's the thing, and I'm, let me just say this. I don't expect people to be deep like me. Everybody's not deep like me. And, and that's cool. Like I said, you don't have to be- I, I didn't sit in my room and say, I'm going to become the greatest music historian there ever was. No. The reason why I know what I know, just like you do, is simply because we made conscious decisions. We were interested in the behind the scenes. And of course me, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm between me and you, I'm, I'm an artist. So it's like, I studied the front and the back and the left and the right of the music industry, the artistic viewpoint and the business viewpoint, the production, what goes into it. And because I had an early start, look who my family is. I was already in the studio at seven learning about production. Remember, I saw a set it off by straight being made. That's my mother, that's my mother's band leader, Steve. See, y'all know I'm that straight. That's Uncle Steve to me. You understand what I'm saying? I saw when set it off was being made before it became the hit that it became. I was only eight years old, man. I watched Radar and Steve make that track. I saw that being made. So I already kind of was hip to it. So I can't help it if I decided to do the homework and dig deeper as I got older. I love music that much. Now you're not a musician, but obviously you love music that much because you studied enough to say, I want to know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm fascinated by the movers and the shakers who made these artists who I love pop off. Am I right? Yes, you are correct. And before we talk about your current projects and everything like that, I want to talk about a male vocalist. Mid-80s R&B, powerful vocals, doesn't get enough uh -oh. mention, had hits off the Prelude record label with cuts such as Keep On, You're the One For oh, Me, Something's On Your Mind, Ice Melts In The Rain. Can we talk about D-Train? D-Train, oh man. <laughs> Genius. A man who simply, in my humble opinion, now see, again, going back to what I said earlier, those who know, know. D-Train, without question, is one of the most important singer-songwriters that helped in aiding in the transition or the combination of traditional R&B and contemporary R&B. In other words, where it had just ended and where it was going. That's why to this very day, when you put on, you're the one for me or keep on, what happens? You know, 2021, you put them records on. Reach and reach. See what I mean? It's like those songs are still personified and rectified 
in the culture of R&B, pop, dance, disco, whatever the fuck you want to call it. So we can't talk about that early 80s transition and not talk about D-Train. That's how important and vital to the game. To me, in my opinion, he does not get enough conversation. No, he definitely does not. Keep giving me love. Another cut. We could just go down the list of all of his cuts. But let's go ahead and let's talk about your current projects and also where can folks get the merch? Okay, here we go. So absolutely, um, as anybody knows, um, my third album is out, Mega Dope Maniac, which is doing really, really well, as you already know. Um, we, we've made a lot of playlists this year. Um, the streaming has been going excellent. As a matter of fact, um, my duet with Roger Ortega called Part Like We Used To is currently number two on the Back to Beat radio station on for, for, for the EDM Countdown show. We're number two right now, which is amazing considering the fact that this is one of the most popular songs off my record. There's only eight songs on this album. I have a few more albums coming out before the year is over. We coming hard this year, like making up for lost time and a lot of different things I had to make sure was right before we continue. And of course, um, I'm featured on Jelly Bean's new album. Jelly Bean Johnson from Mars in the Time has an album that showcases his incredible guitar work in addition to what he's done on drums. And the most popular song is the one that I wrote called She Can Get It. And his whole album is available at jellybeanjohnson.com. So you can actually go get that album. It's not, it's not available for streaming. We're not doing streaming with that album. This is all CD, vinyl, and cassette. So people that want to get a hold of that and you want to hear the best in funk R&B from the real Minneapolis gods, go to jellybeanjohnson.com to get that record. I'm on two songs. I got She Can Get It, which I wrote and produced. And I'm featured on Shattered Pieces, which I wrote and I did a duet alongside with the, a lovely Tamar Davis, who also wrote the song as well. So um, they, they can check those out right now. And we got a whole bunch of other stuff getting ready to come out. Um, my artist, Arizona Lindsay, just got signed with a huge PR firm out in Nashville. I co-produced um, her album, The Process, which is a country pop album. So that's coming out in um, sometime in April. And um, I'm in the studio right now with the incredible Tina Torres, which you're going to hear a lot of incredible Latin rock pop fused with R&B and hip hop. So I can't wait till you hear that project as well. So that's my stance as a producer and a writer, in addition to all my artistry stuff that we got going on now. And as far as the merch, absolutely. They can contact me on facebook.com slash lawplanet12. They can um, you know, hit me up in the inbox because we have um, Celia's Closet. They can contact at Celia's Closet at Gmail. Um, of course, the stuff is already posted up in terms of what we have. As you know, we have the hats, we have the shirts, we have the alien socks, um, we have the alien face masks, and we also got um, hoodies are on their way. We have um, red and black t-shirts with my um, logo and my imprint and my image. Of course, I own it. It's mine. Um, and so far, it's been selling out really, really fast. You've probably seen it the last couple of days, man. It's been moving. It's really, really moving. The fans are showing so much love to us and they've been waiting a long time for me to put out merch. So I took the time and I made it happen. Yeah, they're definitely going like hotcakes. So hit them up so that you can get your law merch, the, the skull caps, the shirts, the socks, the shirts, so that you can be in style when you go to a law show. So now plug yourself. Absolutely. Bro. Plug yourself. Absolutely. Oh, don't forget y'all. Keep, I want to take this time for everybody who's watching that's probably been fans of mine and just fans of us in general. Thank you so much for the incredible success of the Planet Soul podcast, because as everybody knows, this podcast was started. And then, of course, you being such an influence over the years, because I've always said to myself that if I'm going to do 
a podcast of any caliber, it would be along the lines of what us guys represent in terms of being true music heads, because I felt like a lot of other podcasts were very boring and they asked the same questions. So um, thanks to the fans that have made the Planet Soul podcast a tremendous success on Instagram. You know, we're getting a lot of exclusives. There's been a lot of phone calls coming in. A lot of other artists want to get on because they, they love what we do at, on our show. So um, thank, and thank you for supporting it as well, because you've been very instrumental in promoting us and doing everything like that. So I just want to take that time to thank you publicly in front of the fans to let them know that there are black men that do support each other in terms of what we're doing, because we are all in this together for the safety and the protection of our culture, especially on the musical level, and especially at a time like this. And I'm, that's all another conversation we want to get into. Mm -hmm. So it's important. Yeah, definitely important. So shout out to the collective, Derek, Ron, you guys know who you are. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know who you are. So this interview will be available on all streaming platforms, Anchor, yes, Apple, will. Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeart, and you can go to YouTube of the same name beyond the album cover where you can catch the video version as well. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, my brother from another mother, Law on Beyond the know Album it. with your boy. Thank you once again, bro, for coming on. Thank you. Planet 12 forever, baby. We got it. Yes, sir. All right, so the interview it is going to drop on...